As an entrepreneur, you wake up every day knowing that you're either going to be a genius or an idiot, but never just a regular guy or girl getting through the day. And I think that's like so true. Like at any point, like any decision you make, could you be seen as like the smartest thing ever and people celebrate it or like total failure and total disaster, but it's never just like getting through the day. And so when you get to that stage, when you build a company where it is kind of just getting through the day, because everything's kind of running on its own and you're not really taking risk and you're not really having to, um, you know, kind of put it all on the line like we did the last couple of weeks, um, you know, it gets monotonous and it's hard to stay engaged. And so I feel like I've been given this, like this, I never thought, to be honest, I never thought I would get to do this again. I really did. I think over the past couple of years, I've said, gosh, Tom's was this amazing experience that happened to me. But it happened. It happened, yeah. It was something like I would tell my grandkids about, and I'm so thankful, and it's allowed me to meet all these amazing people, and, and, it's, and it's given me so much. But I'm never- It was almost like it was in the past tense. It, I absolutely, it was in the past tense. Even though, you know, I, you know I, I'm still here, it was, I was- I was living, my best memories of Tom's was in the past up until three weeks ago. And now I can honestly say this has been more electrifying and exciting and intellectually stimulating than even the beginning. You know, so, so and now I also can see how this can be a longer vision for my life. And so um, it's, it's exciting. I'm having trouble sleeping. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Busman, and that's the founder of Tom's, as in Tom's Shoes, Blake Mykoski, talking about a moment that recently changed his life and just may change yours. Little background, and as you'll see, background is a very important word here. Blake was volunteering in Argentina more than a decade ago, when he came across kids living in poverty. This is a longer story, which you're gonna hear in all its glory, but the upshot is that he decided to have about, oh, 800 pair of Argentinian shoes, the Albargata, manufactured and sent to America to sell. The idea was to use the profits on each sale to gift a pair of shoes to a kid in need. Listen to Blake talk about the moment he went back to Argentina to give away free shoes. There was one experience, it wasn't a particular kid, it was actually three boys and their mom that was kind of the most meaningful experience. And that was on the first giving trip. So the first giving trip was so fun because we sold 10,000 pairs of shoes out of my apartment that summer, right? And so like we were hoping to sell 800 a year, we sold 10,000 in three months. And so at the end of that, I was like, okay, 10,000 is a big number. It also seems like now we should go back and give away all the shoes because we promised our customer that when they buy a pair, we're gonna give a pair. So I call up Alejo and I say, Alejo, I'm gonna bring my parents, my brother, my sister, some friends from college. We're all gonna come down. Let's get a couple Greyhound buses rented. We'll put all the shoes in the in the, in the luggage area and let's travel around kind of the northern part of, of, of Argentina on the border of Brazil, Misiones, where there's really intense poverty and let's give away all these shoes. Alejo, you get your parents, your brother, your sister, you know, your friends, and we'll all together, the Argentines, the Americans, do this trip together. And so the first week, it was amazing. I mean, a lot of emotional experiences, a lot of, you know, just kind of 
like pinching yourself, I can't believe this is my life type experiences, you know, because I'd just been there with the idea not even six months before. And and it was in the second week, towards the end of the week, um, that we were leaving a, a school and we were getting ready to go to the next place, which was a clinic. And so what we would happen is we would take all the extra shoes. We'd take all the boxes, give the kids the shoes, and then whatever we didn't give away to that group, we would put back into the Greyhounds and the bus and go to the next village. Um, and so we're kind of running late. It's kind of end of the day, typical thing, like kind of, you know, all the kids want us to stay and play. They don't want us to leave. You know, we're kind of having to say goodbye. Everyone's on the bus. I have a box and I'm going back and this woman comes and she's like grabbing me and she's crying and she's speaking in Spanish really fast. And I already have said that I don't speak very good Spanish. So I don't really understand what's wrong. She's got these three boys with her and they all have a red pair of tops because we were giving red shoes that day. And I said, Alejo, like, we got to go, and this woman won't leave me alone. Like, she's crying. I don't understand what's wrong. Will you figure out, figure this out? So I get on, the, I start to get on the bus, and he goes, que pasa? You know, what's up? And he's, like, asking her, and she starts telling him this, like, story. She calms down, starts telling the story, and as she's telling him, he starts crying. And so I'm watching this, and I'm like, I don't have to know Spanish to understand that whatever she's telling him is, like, super emotional to him. And she's pointing at her boys and this and that. And so I say, what, what is the deal? And he says, you know, this woman just explained to me that these are her three boys and that for the past year, and, and, he, and she, he hand, she had handed him an old pair of like men's Oxford shoes and uh, they were all beat up and they're big, way bigger than the kids would wear. And they said that these boys have been sharing the single pair of shoes. And so the oldest son would like put these on his feet and like shuffle because if he stepped out, he would fall out of them, shuffle to school because he had his shoes go to school, the two other brothers would stay home, and then he would come home after Monday, give the shoes to the middle brother, then he would stay home, and then the next brother would go to school. And so the kids were alternating every third day that they would go to school because the family only had one pair of shoes. And now they were all going to have a pair of shoes. They were all going to go to school together for the first time, and that's what she was sharing with the, with Alejo. And, I mean, when I heard that story, that was like, holy sh- I mean, th- I knew philosophically kids needed shoes to go to school. I, I had heard from the nonprofits. Intellectually, I got it. But it wasn't until I heard that woman's personal story that I was like, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm, this is not going to be just a side hustle. This is going to be everything okay, I've Okay, that's the yeah. moment I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. Tom's shoes blossomed into a monumental operation that now gives shoes to kids in more than 70 countries around the world and sells eyeglasses to help restore eyesight. All these incremental advances and improvements were fabulous, but Blake thought he would never again have that wondrous moment that can only come when a startup is conceived. But then, last October, there was a terrible moment, a shooting in Pittsburgh. And even though he was thousands of miles away, Blake was transformed once again because his wife wondered if she could feel comfortable sending a child to school. You'll hear all the details, but the upshot is Blake's trying to make America better for all of us with a campaign to stop gun violence. Not by banning firearms, but by establishing universal background checks. And he's throwing the full weight of Tom's behind it starting with a $5 million contribution. Now, it's important for everyone to understand 
that this is not a my side or your side issue. 90% of Americans support universal background checks. 90%, 9-0. These checks are a proposed federal policy change. This change would require a background check every time a gun is sold. It stops the people who shouldn't be having them from buying them at gun shows and through direct selling methods. If you'd like to make America a safer place, go to toms.com and send a postcard to your representative. They're going to make it easy for you. I did, and I think by the end of listening to this episode, you will send that postcard too. Now, I generally wouldn't include advertising in an episode that contains a shooting, but in this case, I'm going to make an exception because Blake has often been seen wearing a My Intent bracelet. And I think it's important to bring that up. Here's why. People who've achieved great things use these bracelets to help propel them to where they want to go. Not only Blake, but Beyonce, Conan O'Brien, Larry King has worn one. The idea is this. You think hard about the word that you'd like to inspire you to get to higher ground. That word is chiseled into a token that's attached to a beautiful band which wraps around your wrist. Every time you see that word, you're reminded of where you need to go. It's support. It's motivation. It's your North Star to guide you. And it's a great conversation starter that just might enable you to meet the person who can help you get to where you want to go. So go to myintent.org to check these bracelets out and be like Blake, make a change in the world. And while you're at your computer or mobile phone, make sure to go to toms.com to support the mission of background checks on gun sales. Hard for me to imagine anyone not lending support, not after hearing this conversation. So let's get straight to Blake Mykoski. When you decided to try to end gun violence, did you have any idea where this was going? No. I mean, it was, it was really a emotional, spontaneous kind of gut decision that I, that I felt. And I say felt because it really wasn't something I thought about as much as I felt. And when my wife called me and said, you know, someone has to do something. That was the last thing she said to me. I hung up the phone. I was in the back of the Uber, and it was, I had just incredible clarity. It almost sounds like a spiritual experience where it's just like, you know what? It's not someone, it's Tom's, and it's me. And we built this company for a reason so that we would be ready for a moment like this where we could take a stand. And but what, what was it about this moment? Because there have been so many yes, shootings. Yes. And this could have sm- grabbed you by the lapels at any point. It it's could happening have. so often. Yeah. Why was it these two particular moments that stood out for you? I've thought about that. And the answer is I don't know. I mean, they're just the, 
the absolute truthful answer is, you know, after Parkland happened, I signed up for um, for the Everytown newsletter, and and I, I sent you know several uh, emails and and signed up for the text chain so you could be aware of different things that were happening to help end gun violence. So I was I was kind of interested in the space because I was a concerned person after seeing this, but it wasn't something that I ever connected the dots to how Tom's or myself could be involved. And I think the, the reason why this affected me so much was my wife said, I'm not gonna take our son to school today and I don't know if I'm gonna take him back ever. And I thought, okay, this is now affecting the future of my son's education. Like she's considering homeschooling him now because she's scared and that's not a way to live. And, and it, I think that is what made it so personal. And the backstory of some of this is, for the past two years at Tom's, we've been discussing how we can use our model to have more impact beyond giving shoes and eyesight surgeries and really, you know, work on some of the biggest challenges and issues of our time. So we've been talking about like doing something different beyond our traditional business model for two years but no one could ever agree on what we should do and everyone had different ideas and it was just talk and talk and talk. And something about this moment was like enough talk, like enough is enough, like we could do something about this. We could, we could really um, make a stand and I didn't know what that stand would be, but I just, something inside of me said like, we need to do something. And I, and I don't know why, it's like it was, it's, it's, it's kind of surreal to even think about how, why it affected me so much, but it really did. Okay, so here's what interests me. Do you ever remember, do you remember having this, we got to do something feeling when you were really young, when you were in second grade or mm. something? Is this something that is encoded in your DNA somehow? I've always been very action oriented. So I can't think of maybe a, a moment in second grade but I definitely can think back to 2006, being on a farm in Argentina, seeing kids that don't have shoes and being told that if they had shoes, they could go to school. And me, you know, telling my friend who was a polo player, like, I think I should start a shoe company to help kids get shoes. Like that was a, that was a natural response for me of seeing that, using my entrepreneurial gifts um, to, to, to make a positive change and to be able to make a difference in these kids' lives that I was kind of tangentially experiencing by being in Argentina. So, But bef before then, did you feel something in being an entrepreneur that al allowed you to make a difference? Like when, when did you start with this way of thinking? Sure, it, it really started in Argentina with that, but there was a mentor of mine named Bob Dedman. Um, he was one of the most philanthropic people in Texas, built a big company, became a billionaire, gave a lot of money to uh, SMU where I went to school. And I asked him once, I played around a golf with him when he was probably in his late 70s and I was 
2021. And I said to him, um, I said, you know, I'd love a piece of advice before the end of the day. And he wrote down on a piece of paper, he wrote down, the more you give, the more you live. And I kept that in my wallet for many, many years. And even though I didn't start a business that incorporated giving back, I started a laundry business, then I started an outdoor advertising company, then I started a television network. I mean, all these different businesses were just purely businesses. I always thought about that saying that he was so successful uh, and yet his his kind of greatest joy was in is, is helping others. And so my thought always was, as a young entrepreneur, I'm gonna be an entrepreneur, I'm gonna try to make as much money as I can up until say I'm 60. And then when I'm 60, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life giving it all away. <laughs> and I used to tell people that all the time. Actually, it's funny, if we can if we can remember MySpace, on MySpace, you had to have like a sentence about you that kind of defined who you were. And I said, I will not be remembered for what I created, but for what I gave away. And that was when I was 19 years old. And so that was encoded in me from that early age. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really, it didn't really come out or manifest until I was 29 when I started Tom's. I, you know, I'm reminded of the Pablo Picasso quote, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Yes, it's a great quote. So, so did you find your gift when you were visiting Argentina or did you find it when that note was handed to you? I think I found my gift when I was 18 years old and I started my laundry business. Um, I had a, an injury. Uh, I, was a, I went to SMU on a partial tennis scholarship. I wanted to be a professional tennis player. My whole life was all about tennis. And I had an injury that sidelined me for about six months. And during that time, I literally couldn't pick up my laundry because I was on crutches. And so that, that necessity to have someone do my laundry um, because I couldn't do it led to uh, the business idea, there's a lot of students that probably don't want to do their laundry. And so I started a laundry business. And, and, and that was my way of kind of using my free time that I now had because I wasn't able to be playing tennis. And I feel like it, it, it didn't take off overnight, but it took off pretty quickly. And we had customers and revenue and profits. And I was 18 years old. And so many people said to me, oh, you're a young entrepreneur. I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur meant. <laughs> Right? I mean, literally, I remember, I literally remember looking up entrepreneur in the dictionary at 18 years old and being like, oh, but I like what this sounds like. Like, you know, like the definition was about someone who identifies opportunities where other people don't see them, builds a business around it. And so I, I think that I found my gift, to use Pablo Picasso's quote, I found my gift in those early years of starting the laundry business that I could take an idea from nothing and turn it into a business. I gave my gift away in Argentina. That was the first time when I, because I saw a problem that most people would have tried to solve with charity or philanthropy. And instead I said, you know what? I don't think charity is sustainable enough. These kids need shoe after shoe after shoe. And if you're depending on donations, you might get them today, but if you don't get that donation tomorrow, what are you gonna tell that kid? But if I start a business and I'm selling shoes so I can give shoes, I feel like it's mo more sustainable. And so I use my entrepreneurial gift that I learned at 18 and I gave it away when I was 29 and then I gave it away again now at 42. So this is very different from waiting till you were 60 yeah, to yeah. give it away. And, and that's why I wrote a book. I mean, cause I, I, you know, I, I love the idea that a plan that I had in my mind of like working your, 
you know, as hard as you can to build something. And then at 60, you know, giving it all away and experiencing the joy of giving that, that Bob did and then told me about, I actually got to start that when I was 29. And that's, I feel like I had the greatest job in life in the world because I've had so much joy doing that. So in the 10 years between the round of golf and the laundry business <laughs> yeah. and the epiphany in Argentina, what was percolating in you? Were you just refining the way to run a business and bring in money? Yeah, I was just focusing on being that entrepreneur because when that piece of paper was handed to me from Bob, the more you give, the more you live, and me watching how he did it in his life, I thought, okay, I got a lot of work to do, so I have a lot to give. And so in, from 18 to 29, all I was doing was trying to make money building businesses. And I had a couple of businesses that had some success. I had a couple that were complete failures. Um, and I had definitely not built enough wealth to really be giving it away yet. Um, but at, at, you know, it, it, at 29, and when I had the idea for Tom's, it just seemed like such a unique opportunity to build something and give at the same time. Now, I had no idea that it would become what it became. I thought it was kind of a small project. It's like a spark. Yeah. So for anyone listening, and there's people listening in Mongolia. That's what really that. just so cool. blows my mind. It's the best. Who wants to start a business? Yeah. Are there certain principles that you could mm. recommend? Yes. I'm glad you asked that. So I get this question a lot when I speak at universities. And I say, and I'm going to answer it a little bit differently, is um, I don't think you choose to be an entrepreneur, like you choose to be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. It just happens to you? I think what you choose is a problem or something you want different in the world or something you want better. And then you become an entrepreneur in trying to solve that problem. If you look at the best businesses and the greatest entrepreneurs that we all know their names, none of them started with, I want to start a business to make money. They said, you know what? I hate the way that it <laughs> is to do my taxes, so I create TurboTax. They make it easier for me to do my taxes. Now everyone does it, and Intuit's a massive company. You know, I, I really want uh, to have this computer to, to program this, and then it becomes, you know, you know, Microsoft. I mean, it's like you look at all these entrepreneurs and they saw something that yeah. they wanted different in the world and they just got after it. And then they became entrepreneurs so that they could share that with more people. But I don't, I really, and so to answer your question, like, yes, I do you, think- You really need to be set off by something. Something, yes. Yeah. Okay, you know, I'm thinking founder of Netflix uh, has rented his movies at Blockbuster and he's always returning them in late, and then one day he goes in, and exactly. it's just so much money. Yeah. Why? Yeah, exactly. So, so really, you need something to happen to you in order to, to that's the striking of the match. Yeah. And that sets things off. Without that strike of the match, nothing's going to happen. I, I look, I think there are some businesses started you know, maybe in real estate or in banking or in more of your traditional spaces where you could be entrepreneurial. But I think the really big ideas, the real, the companies that, that we all end up, you know, falling in love with or using or understanding, they come from those experiences. And then the entrepreneur having empathy, I think empathy is one of the most important characteristics of an entrepreneur. Because like, 
I don't like the way, I don't like these blockbuster fees, and there's a lot of other people that don't like them too. And that's how you identify your, quote, target market, as the business people would tell you. Okay, so not only are you feeling this either sense of pain or uncomfortability. Injustice. Injustice. You're identifying, you know what, I am part of a mass of people who yeah. feel this way. And, and and in some ways, I think that's what happened three weeks ago um, and gave me the confidence to kind of bet the company on focusing on ending gun violence. I felt that like enough is enough. My wife is not the only person that's scared in this country. It's crazy to live in America and be scared of gun violence. And 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 I think that if we make a bold move, people will join us. And that was part of the way I sold it to our board and to our CEO. I said, look, this is not just a Blake, Heather personal thing. I actually think that people who support Tom's and people who hear about what we're doing all are feeling the same thing. There's been more mass shootings um, in, in the United States, especially in schools, than ever in history. And so we're reading about this over and over again. Almost getting numb to it almost. In, in a lot but of I ways. I think that's where just the right timing was. It was almost the point where we're getting numb or getting to the point where we really are saying that enough is enough, someone has to do something. And then by, by taking that first action, it gave so many people permission on every spectrum of the political side to say, you know what, there's something very sensible we can do, universal background checks. Like that was the key thing is by focusing on something that 90% of Americans agree on, but just there has not been the political will yet to get passed. I think focusing on that and allowing everyone to participate through the postcards, which we've now had 695,000 Americans have gone to toms.com and sent postcards by giving them a simple action and them all recognizing, like, we all feel this way. We all feel that we want to not allow people like felons, people who have mental illness, or people who are domestic abusers to continue to buy guns. So I want to go back and just compare the striking of the match moments. Yes. Like, when you were in Argentina, Yeah. Uh, what were you doing there? Mm. So every year, so I started my first company when I was 18, and I always say to people that I was the oldest t- oldest person in their 20s, and I'm the youngest person in their 40s. Because, And then what I mean by that is all I did was work in my 20s. All my friends were going to the bars. They were, having, they were playing golf. They were doing all these fun things. Once I started my first company, all I did was work for like 10 years. And so my— Like how many hours a day? I mean like all day, like from 6 a.m. to waking up to— eight or nine or 10 o'clock at night and, you know, eat a little dinner, go to bed and do it again. And then there's my what, life. What was it that consumed you like that? Because there was, there wasn't the giving. No, no, it was just, it was purely just, I think all my competitive spirit of training to be a professional tennis player, once I abandoned tennis and realized that wasn't my passion. I got to win the game. You got to win the game. And so an entrepreneurship became a competitive thing that there was a way to keep score. There was, it was, I enjoyed the challenge. I loved the team building aspect. I mean, it just, it consumed me. And, and, and so the thing is, is that I did that, you know, for all these years and what I said to myself was, okay, I'm not going to have life balance on a day-to-day basis. No we, family at this no point? No family, no. girlfriends, but, you know, they at some point they would always kind of leave because I was, Just you working, know, constantly. working constantly. But what I said to myself was, every January I'm going to take off and I'm going to go somewhere exotic and learn something new. 
And so- For the month. For the month. So like that was my thing. So I was literally gonna allow myself, like I'd work so hard 11 months a year, but for a month I would go and do something. So I went to South Africa and went diving with the great white sharks. Then I did, you know, I've been, I've been to um, all, all over the world really at different places. But this particular year I said, I'm gonna go to Argentina and learn how to play polo. <laughs> <laughs> like, like why polo? So I saw a polo match actually in South Africa. And I, you know, I grew up in Texas, riding horses a little bit, but never playing polo. And I thought that is the most intense sport I've ever seen. Like people flying down the field on a horse, hitting a little ball with a stick. I just loved everything about it. But I didn't have hardly any money then. And I knew it was expensive to play polo. So I typed into Google. This is one of my favorite stories to tell. I typed into Google, polo camp, comma, cheap. <laughs> and this place came up in Argentina, right? The Tarde Polo Club. And so literally, I bought a ticket, went down to Argentina, um, and learned to play polo. And, um, you know, that was when, and I'd have to drive from Buenos Aires to the polo ranch, which was way outside the city. It was a cheap one. And every time I drove there, I drove through some really poverty-stricken areas. And I saw many people living in, you know, were kind of like shanty towns and kind of projects. And I saw kids on the street who looked like they were high on glue or this or that and not wearing much clothes. And it just, every day I saw this over and over again. And I hadn't seen much real poverty growing up. And we don't think of poverty in Argentina. But some of the, what I, I will say about this, about poverty is, now I've you know I've been to you know forty something countries around the world through Tom's you know we've given now eighty eight million shoes away so I've visited all these places. The worst poverty I've seen in the world is poverty that is in close proximity to big cities. So like I'll go to Tigray, Ethiopia, in the middle of the foothills, and they might not have clean water, and they might live in like the most you know kind of simplistic mud huts and have no electricity but they are so happy because they don't know what they don't have. Right. But then you go to you know Johannesburg, South Africa, or you go just outside Buenos Aires, or you go just outside Sao Paulo. In that poverty, they might technically have more material possessions, but they're seeing everything that they don't have. And that is a, that is a, is a soul-crippling poverty. And that's what I saw on that road in between Buenos Aires and Moreno. You know, as you're describing this, I'm thinking like how ironic somebody goes off, <laughs> flies thousands of miles to learn to play polo yeah. and runs into poverty. Because when we think of polo- Sure, it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, life, I think is, life is so amazing and so ironic and beautiful. And I think that that's part of the story that I love telling is like, yeah, I mean, I went to learn to play polo and I came back you know, committing my life to helping kids get shoes. I mean, like, you could never have ever scripted that. But was there a single moment where the match was lit where you saw, like, one kid's feet? Sure. So the moment actually happened when I saw many kids without shoes, and then I was actually in a bar in Buenos Aires, and I, I overheard a few women talking at the bar in English, and almost everyone was only speaking Spanish. And so I went up to them and just started chatting with them and asked them what they were doing in Buenos Aires. And they explained that they were doing some volunteer work and they specifically were doing the shoe drive. And they said, we are going around collecting shoes from you know, wealthy families 
um, slightly used shoes that they don't need, and we're giving them to kids because the school season's getting ready to start, and they need shoes for school. And I said, wow, that's like really admirable of you. That's, I, I love that idea. I said, well, when are you guys going? And they're like, well, in a week, we're going to go, and we're going to distribute all the shoes, and we need volunteers. And I was like, okay, I'm here for a month. I'll go with you for a day. And so I went to this village in Los Pilitones, and I saw the great joy of kids and their parents getting these shoes. And I got to help put shoes on kids' feet, and we jump rope and played soccer and stuff after. It was fun, right? Could the kids not go to school without shoes? That or? was part of the uniform requirement was the shoes. And so they were very so excited. basically, without the shoes, your life was done. Well, you're definitely not going to get the education you could get. Yeah, right. I mean, this, this is very common in places like throughout Africa and throughout India, and a lot of our shoe giving is for education. And so I had a great day. And so then I came back that night, and I had dinner with my polo instructor. And he's like, so where were you today? And I was like, well, this is what I did. And I'm obviously excited and da da and, and so the striking of the match was this. He said to me, he said, it, I, I think what you did today is great, but who's going to give the kids their next pair of shoes? because you're going back to LA and these women were here visiting two of them from the United States, one was from the UK. And like, it's great that you got these donations, but they're gonna wear out of these shoes and who's gonna give them their next pair? And I remember that night going to bed thinking, shit, like, did we do something good for the kids or did we just make ourselves feel good? Wow. You know, that was like a really powerful moment because I was like, if we just gave them one pair of shoes and we disappear and then they don't get another pair. It happens a year from now. Exactly. And so I went to bed that night actually not feeling as fulfilled as I did when I started the day. But then the next morning, every, my, my ritual every morning is- I That do, instructor really- Yeah. Well, he became my partner in Tom's. So right. he's in the book. His name's Alejo. Right. And so um, so the next morning I wake up, and there's two things I do every morning. I, I drink espresso, and I write in my journal. And I've been doing it you know, for a long time. And so I'm there on the farm writing, and I'm writing about the question he asked me. And that's when I had that moment where I was like, you know what? Like, why do we always look to charity to solve societal problems? Like, why isn't business showing up? Like, I'm an entrepreneur. I know how to start a business. I've started four businesses already. Like, why not start a business and have it help these kids get shoes? And so when he came to get me for breakfast, without really thinking much about it, I said, Alejo, I have an idea. It's an answer to your question. Instead of these kids being dependent on donations, what if I start a shoe company where I take your traditional shoe here in Argentina, and every time I sell a pair, we give a pair back. And that way, people in LA can wear these cool shoes that no one has seen before and know that they're helping a kid get a pair. And every year when we sell them, I'll come back you know, for school and for Christmas time, and it'll be like a fun project, and will you do it with me? And that was the beginning. So you get the striking of the match, and is there something that goes through your whole body that makes it a life-changing event? Or is it just, that's a good idea, let me see where it goes. Is it curiosity or is it a mission immediately? So it's been both. And so I, I'm glad you asked that question because everyone thinks that when I had the idea for Tom's on that farm in Argentina, it was like an epiphany or like a vision from God. Absolutely not true. It was like, you know what, this would be fun. 
Like, we can help 200 kids get shoes. I can come back to Argentina and play polo with you. Like, it was not a, oh, it was, man. it was, it was, it was literally was... just like a fun idea. And it was like, you know what? Let's see if we can make a couple hundred pairs. I'll sell them to my friends. I'll come back at Christmas. We'll give the, all the kids shoes. And this will be an excuse for me to come back two, three times a year. And it'll be a cool thing. That's all it was. It wasn't a business. It wasn't an a, a, a invention of a new model. I mean, literally, I was running another company at the time. Like, this is a side project. So when I got back and I showed some of the, my girlfriends the shoes, they liked them. They thought the idea was cool. They bought a pair. Like, you know, and then, and then we got some, you know, kind of some, some, some people in the media space, uh, Vogue magazine. Well, there, was and, a, there was a key moment with the Los Angeles Times. Times. Yeah. yeah. So, but let's break the, down the story a little because okay. now you have this idea and now you, it, it goes back to that first question I asked. You want to start a business. Yeah. What do you, what do, you do? How do you think sure. to, to, to start this up? Because so, this is your fourth business, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, Step one. This is step one. But before that, as you asked, it was this epiphany moment. It wasn't, and I'll explain the steps on how I took it from a, a curious idea to becoming a business. But I, I will say, on the, on the, after the call of my wife, that was a electrifying moment. Like that was the. So opposite. that was a very different. That was oh, a very this different. This is what I came. Yeah. This is what I came to understand. Yeah. Like the different. It was totally levels. different. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, we'll get to we'll that. We'll get to that. But so, I just wanted so to this make, is, there's a clear distinction. Th that's yeah. exactly what I wanted to know. Okay. Uh, because it's going in the same place, but the striking of the match were two different things. Yeah. There was very little consequence to me saying, you know what, I'm going to make some shoes, sell them, and every time I sell a pair, I give a pair away, and I'll come back to Argentina, and I'll get to do this. This, this is more... Hey, I got a friend yeah, here now. I fun. can come back and yeah. see him. Okay. It was it was a very now. So when I got back, I said, "Okay, yeah, I've started a business before. There's some basic things you need to do. You know, you create a product. Well, I already had the shoe from Argentina. You you know, create a marketing you know kind of um, you know kind of offer. And my offer was when you buy these shoes, you're helping kids get shoes one for one. Like that made sense. Um, and the shoe and didn't. The economics and, worked. And, out. and the economics worked. A very inexpensive shoe to make in Argentina. And we're making them there locally. And so I was like, okay, like this is a simple thing. So I'm going to take these steps and I'm going to have a nice little side business that will help kids get shoes. So how many shoes are you thinking? So uh, I'm thinking, you know, there's 200 about, kids. Yeah, there's 200 kids. I'm thinking if I can sell like six to 800 pairs a year, you know, and I can do that probably in the greater LA, Southern California area, then that gives each kid three to four pairs a year is what they need because they run out of, they wear out a matter of three months. Okay. <laughs> so I could see... That at this point you don't even have any like ambitions. Zero, zero. <laughs> I'm running another business. No, I'm running an online, you know, education company that is 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 growing nicely, showing a lot of promise. Like that was my that was my business. This is like the side hustle, right? Like this is just do this for fun. It'll, it'll give me meaning in my life. You know, I'll feel like connected to these kids. I want to go back to Argentina a lot. I love it down there. Um, and so then. How does it go from there to what then happened a few months later? You know, I, I got in one store here in Los Angeles. Um, we made and that, it. That's a great story. Yeah. That's a great story how you did that. Yeah. So so I, so I got in this. Well, basically, I, I went to many different stores at first, and I was getting just kind of shut down, shut down, shut down. And then I went to the store called American Rag, and I found the shoe buyer. 
And instead of leading with the shoes, I led with the story. I started showing her pictures of these kids without shoes. And then I showed her pictures of kids that we gave shoes to. And I said, this was like the most amazing experience. And because of that, I brought the shoe from Argentina. And by the time I put the shoe on the table, she was already sold because she was sold by the story. And, and that was such a moment of, of learning for me. Uh, this, this is a big question here. Why do so many salespeople try to sell the product as opposed to the story? Yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's crazy to me. And, it, and, you know, I think it's something that happens... You know, I mean, maybe they're, they're a, it's a derivative of years and years of evolution in selling, right? Like at, at, at one point, the product attributes is probably all that mattered, you know, in the 20s or the 30s, right? And then, and then once we got to a place where products became more commodities, then the story or the, or the, or the backstory of the product maybe mattered more. I don't, I don't know why, but people still are stuck in selling attributes you know, Simon Sinek says they don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And I think that's a really great, great quote that I really like. And I feel like that's definitely how we led with Tom's. Well, the what you did was you told a compelling story. You didn't try to convince her. No, no, I just the shared a compelling story. story yeah, <laughs> convinced, convinced her, her before I even shared the shoe. So we get the shoes in the store, American Rag. The buyer's name was Courtney. And we put in the front of the store, she bought like 85 pairs and I had like 160, so like more than half. And we put a little sign that says, with every pair you purchase, Tom's will give a new pair of shoes to a child in need. And picture of me and the kids from my trip. And about a week later, Booth Moore, who was the, the, the fashion editor of the LA Times, saw that and she was like, wow, that's different. Like, I've never seen a company giving something every time they sell it. So she got my number, she did an interview, and then that one, and it was a small article, but it was on the cover of the calendar section. That one article caused us to sell 2,200 pairs on our website in one day. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> now, there's another great story, and I love these stories where something blows up. I mean, yeah. it's a bad choice of words, yeah. given where we're going, but... Uh, you had like a BlackBerry yes, that was yeah. wired or just connected to the sales. Yes. So anytime a sale came in, <laughs> yeah, it was I got an email. Yeah, because shooting to your yeah, BlackBerry. Yeah, because it was I was selling like maybe two or three pairs a day. You know, my fraternity brother bought a pair, my aunt bought a pair. So at that point, it was nice. Yeah, because hey, like, like, yeah, I Joey. felt yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was just me. You know, I was selling them and shipping them out of UPS out of the apartment after I got home from my real work. And so, yeah, so that morning when I woke up, I turned my BlackBerry on. And, and for those of you listening who had a BlackBerry, if you got a lot of messages, it would almost like freeze up and it would just vibrate. And my, mine was vibrating so much that it was like spinning on the table. Like it was like a possessed. And then it spun for so long, the battery died. So then I didn't even know what was, what was happening. So I went to breakfast at this place, the Rose Cafe, where I always used to go in Venice with my buddies. And they were like exploding with excitement because they had seen the cover of the newspaper. And they're like, can you believe it? Da, da. And then it then all it hit. Yeah, you made the yeah. connection. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's what happened exactly. to the BlackBerry. Yeah. Okay, so now you've just sold more than 2,000 pairs and of we, shoes. And we don't have them, obviously. Got no shoes. Yeah, no shoes. And, so. and this can cripple a business. I remember when Oprah would have somebody on. Yeah. And their website wouldn't be prepared sure. for the enormous amount of traffic, and it would just blow up. Yep. yep. What do you do in that situation? So I do two things. The first thing I did is I went on Craigslist and I put ads for interns. 
because I needed someone to help email and call all of these people that just placed orders that think they're going to get their shoes. So I basically built a customer service department out of interns on Craigslist. And then what I did is I take action. I flew to Argentina the next day, took the newspaper article, landed in Buenos Aires, took a taxi to this guy's house who was making our shoes in his garage, uh, Jose. And I said, Jose, muchos zapatos rapido. <laughs> and that was all the Spanish I knew then. Um, yeah, and I showed him the newspaper. So I knew, like, I was like, look, this is real. And uh, and then we started, we started making a lot of shoes. So, yeah. Now, at that point, the match has been struck. Sure. Is what's going on inside of you? Are you, is it still like a side hustle or is something saying, you know, that's two more than 2,000 pairs of shoes in a day? Yeah, that's $140,000 in revenue in a day. Yeah, no, no, no. At that moment, my entrepreneurial instincts kick in and I go into like execution mode, like, okay, I need to build more factory capacity in Argentina. I need to I need to get these interns to you know deal with customer service until I can get back. You know we need to figure out how we can get a bank line of credit. So I mean like then it's just you know then I'm in full. Now you're back yeah. to where you were when you were 20 working. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. I mean it's 18 just, hours. And a then day. I didn't really. I mean frankly I I didn't stop and I went from we went Tom's went from you know those first sales on in there to six years later to almost half a billion dollars in sales, and so it was a busy six years. Was there something about the process that you could see ahead? Because you you didn't even know the name of the of the company. Yeah. It, it had to be shown to you. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. When I initially we were calling them for the first three or four weeks, tomorrow's shoes. And then we went to the factory and I was like, where are you gonna put the name on the on the shoe? And the guy's like, I don't have room. Like you got this little tag. And so I was like, okay, screw it. Just call them Tom's because that'll be short for tomorrow and we'll call them shoes for a better tomorrow. And so that's, you know, that happened like on week three. And then week four, we were like, you know what? We don't want to create extra waste in the world. So we're not going to use shoe boxes. We're going to use bags, these like recyclable linen bags. And then that turned out to be a horrible idea for a number of supply chain reasons. But those are the types of things we were just making decisions so on the fly. Things would happen, again, it's what you're saying about being an entrepreneur, something is happening. Yeah. And you just got to find a better way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is that's one of the things I miss about the early days. I love, it's almost like, uh, it's like playing a video game or like being an athlete, like you're reacting, you know, you're not like planning, 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 execute. It's like, you know, they say ready, shoot, aim, (laughs) you know, that's, that's fun for me. I really like that. And I've actually gotten to tap back into that in the last couple of weeks. Well, this is where I was ultimately going to go, but let's, let's get there slow. Okay. So you're in let's go mode Uh and all of a sudden people want more and more shoes. There's like a celebrity. Oh yeah. It was amazing. Touch to this where all these actors and people everybody's seeing now wearing the shoes. Yep. What's going through your mind while you're seeing this explosive growth? Mm. I, I, I think for four or five years, no matter how exciting the growth was and how many celebrities or press clippings or whatever, 
all I did was just like run out of pure fear that we were that we weren't going to be able to ca- like keep it going. Like it was just like, why? Well, because it was so rapid that every single good thing that happened caused like five complications. <laughs> so like, like give me an example. Well, you get an example would be like you know we get a great order from Nordstrom that's bigger than we've ever had. And so I work with the factory to make them, but we have to choose a new factory because we need more capacity. (laughs) And then when the shoes get here, which I've already paid a deposit of half the money, which is all my own personal money because I have no investors, because I didn't think any investor would support a company that was giving something like Tom's was every time we sold it. Then the shoes get here and the quality's bad and I don't know what to do. You know, now I have to like go back to the factory and convince them to make more shoes. I have to tell Nordstrom that their their order is going to be a month late. Like there were a lot of good things, but we just didn't have the shoemaking expertise or the supply chain to actually deliver on the demand because the demand was so much greater than we could deliver on. And so it's just like I was just fighting crisis after crisis for like four or five years. You know, I have been asked to speak. Uh, at supply chain <laughs> conferences. Okay. And when I first heard the word supply chain, <laughs> I, to be honest, I didn't even really know what, what it did. Yeah. But I'm listening to you, and this sounds like really important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the backbone of any, you know, at least any business where you make something. Yeah. And what does it take to execute a supply chain, like some kind of command to make that work? I mean, it, it takes so many things because it takes like you got to find places to buy raw materials. Then you got to get the raw materials in a, in a shoe, for instance, and you have to have them cut and then you have to have them sewed and then you have to have them applied to the shoe and then you have to have the shoe go into the box and the box has to have the right label on it. Then the box has to get shipped and then the box has to get to a pick and pack place. I mean, it is a complicated thing, especially if you've never done this before. I mean, all my other businesses were had nothing to do with making something. Just cleaning laundry. Yeah, cleaning laundry, selling advertising, trying to you know start a television network. I mean, I had no, I never had made anything, you know. And so now I had to learn how to make things, ship things. Was that frustrating to you or exciting? Both. I mean, I think. Part of it was what made it so high risk, high reward was the fact that I didn't have any investors or experts or board. This like, is all on you. We were just doing it. Yeah. So it was a very- and you're working out of yeah. your apartment yeah. in Venice. And, and, the, and frankly, I think the reason why I was able to deal with the pressure and we had the success goes back to the tennis days. Tennis is an individual sport. It's only you on the court. You can't like hand off the ball to someone. Like you've got to, if you're going to win the match, you got to figure out how to beat your opponent. And so I think I took a lot of those lessons in these early days of Tom's. Now I had a great team and we grew, we were very scrappy. We hired a bunch of kids right out of college and a lot of kids dropped out of college to work for us. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a motley crew for sure. And we had a couple of people that we started, you know, recruiting from that were more seasoned salespeople or production people. But um, 
but it was it was high stakes. It was you know it was very personal and emotional because every three or four months we'd go back to Argentina. Or eventually we went to South Africa and then Guatemala and then Honduras and we would give the shoes. And so you would go from this one part of your brain, like trying to figure out how to grow and build a business to another part of your brain that is more like, I can't believe that people are living in this level. And if we're bringing a little bit of joy to their life by giving them shoes, like that's such an honor. So it was a real, it was a real, but that would motivate you to go back and work hard again because you saw the benefit of your hard work. Um, Was there one moment, one particular kid that you saw getting the shoes that particularly stands out to you? There's there was one experience. It wasn't a particular kid. It was actually three boys and their mom that was kind of the most meaningful experience. And that was on the first giving trip. So the first giving trip was so fun because we sold 10,000 pairs of shoes out of my apartment that summer, right? And so like we were hoping to sell 800 a year. We sold 10,000 in three months. And so at the end of that, I was like, okay, 10,000 is a big number. It also seems like now we should go back and give away all the shoes because we promised our customer that when they buy a pair, we're going to give a pair. Right. So I call up Alejo and I say, Alejo, I'm going to bring my parents, my brother, my sister, some friends from college. We're all going to come down. Let's get a couple Greyhound buses rented. We'll put all the shoes in the, in the, in the luggage area and let's travel around kind of the northern part of, of, of Argentina on the border of Brazil, Misiones, where there's really intense poverty. And let's give away all these shoes. Alejo, you get your parents, your brother, your sister, you know, your friends, and we'll all together, the Argentines, the Americans, do this trip together. And so, the first week, it was amazing. I mean, a lot of emotional experiences, a lot of, you know, just kind of like pinching yourself. I can't believe this is my life type experiences, you know, because I'd just been there with the idea not even six months before. And, and it was in the second week, towards the end of the week, um, that we were leaving a, a school and we were getting ready to go to the next place, which was a clinic. And so what we would happen is we would take all the extra shoes. We'd take all the boxes, give the kids the shoes, and then whatever we didn't give away to that group, we would put back into the Greyhounds and the bus and go to the next village. Um, and so we're kind of running late. It's kind of end of the day, typical thing, like kind of, you know, all the kids want us to stay and play. They don't want us to leave. You know, we're kind of having to say goodbye. Everyone's on the bus. I have a box and I'm going back. And this woman comes and she's like, grabbing me and she's crying and she's speaking in Spanish really fast. And I already have said that I don't speak very good Spanish, so I don't really understand what's wrong. She's got these three boys with her and they all have a red pair of tops because we were giving red shoes that day. And I said, Alejo, like we gotta go and this woman won't leave me alone. Like she's crying, I don't understand what's wrong. Will you figure out, figure this out? So I get on, the, I start to get on the bus and he goes, que pasa, you know, what's up? And he's like asking her and she starts telling him this like story. She calms down, starts telling the story. And as she's telling him, he starts crying. And so I'm watching this and I'm like, I don't have to know Spanish to understand that whatever she's telling him is like super emotional to him. And she's pointing at her boys and this and that. And so I say, what, what is the deal? And he says, you know, this woman just explained to me that these are her three boys and that for the past year, and, and, he, and she, he hand, she had handed him an old pair of like men's Oxford shoes and uh, they were all beat up and they're big, way bigger than the kids would wear. And they said that these boys have been sharing the single pair of shoes. And so the oldest son would like put these on his feet and like shuffle because if he stepped out, he would fall out of them, shuffle to school because he had his shoes 
go to school. The two other brothers would stay home, and then he would come home after Monday, give the shoes to the middle brother, then he would stay home, and then the next brother would go to school. And so the kids were alternating every third day that they would go to school because the family only had one pair of shoes. And now they were all going to have a pair of shoes. They were all going to go to school together for the first time, and that's what she was sharing with the, with Alejo. And, I mean, when I heard that story, that was like, holy sh- I mean, th- I knew philosophically kids needed shoes to go to school. I, I had heard from the nonprofits. Intellectually, I got it. But it wasn't until I heard that woman's personal story that I was like, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm, this is not going to be just a side hustle. This is going to be everything Okay, that's the yeah. moment I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. And so... What happens then? Because now it's full on. Yeah, full on. I mean, then it then it becomes a little bit of, you know, like a lot of other entrepreneurial stories is, okay, you you know, something is, is connecting with people and you've got- Now you're scaling. Yeah, you're scaling, you're hiring people and you're, you know, and, 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 and that's what, you know, we did for, for many years. And, and um, you know, you're getting things wrong, you're getting things right, you're learning, you're- was it's it, fun. Was it hard to hire people given the format that your company was working in? Because there's not that many companies out there that Especially are back then. making yeah. and giving. No, it was, the hard thing was it wasn't hard to hire people. Actually, one of the things that was a benefit, and I've talked about this a lot of like corporate retreats and stuff, is because we gave people something more than a paycheck, we gave them a sense of purpose, we actually were able to hire some people who were maybe at later stages in their career, like our CFO or, you know, different, like a, a, a wonderful gentleman in sales that said, you know what, I've worked for Nike for 22 years and I've done great, but I want, if I'm going to work five more years or six more years, I want to do something that really feels meaningful. And so we were able to attract kind of two ends of the hiring spectrum. We were able to track the most idealistic people right out of college. All the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all the kids. And then we were able to attract kind of, you know, men and women in their 50s or 60s that were kind of like, you know what? Who if wanted this to be my- idealistic yeah. again. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it actually was, it was actually a real advantage to hiring people. Okay, so now you're scaling. Yeah. What does this do for you? Because I imagine in the scaling, you're connected to all this work, but maybe you're not as connected to like what's going on back in Argentina because it's the work's got to be done. Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, the first four or five years, I feel like I was really, um, had a good balance of going on the giving trips, doing the work, scaling, you know, I was I was single, it was easy, I had no responsibilities, like it was just kind of a, a really fun adventure, you know, and traveling to all these new places, whether it's Cambodia or, you know, or Brazil or I mean, all these places was just like everyone was a new adventure. And I was taking people and they were having these once in a lifetime experiences. So I was, you oh, know. So this is constantly something new for just, you. Yeah, it was stimulation after stimulation. What got hard was, you know, kind of around 2011, 2012, and I actually wrote an article for HBO, the Harvard Business Review magazine about this moment, was it started to get very corporate. And it started to get process-driven and bureaucratic. This is where I was going. And I've hired all these amazing people and all these executives, but I felt like my place as an entrepreneur founder was becoming less and less relevant. And, And I just... I had a few hard years there where I needed 
to have a bigger mission, but there really wasn't a bigger mission. This is exactly yeah. where I wanted to go. Yeah. So is that, what does that do to you? Does it make you leave work thinking, how did this happen? <laughs> I mean, I just saw this woman in tears <laughs> telling the story about the one pair of shoes and the three kids. And now it's like a company. Yeah like a lot of other companies. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. What's going on in you as you're leaving work or does it yeah. make a difference when you get up for work? Sure, it does both. I mean, it's it's just hard. I mean, people who have experienced it know that feeling of, you know, you built something. I think the best analogy really is, um, I have several friends that are musicians and have had some number one hits and then they spend the rest of their life having to sing that same song over and over and oh, over again. Wow. And they're like, you know what? What created that song was my love for music, my love for songwriting, my love for putting something out there that was my heart. And now I'm responsible to just playing that same damn song over it's a pro and over. Now it's a product yeah, that yeah, people yeah. And, want. And, and, and fortunately, you know, with musicians, you see a lot of people turn to drugs and alcohol to numb themselves so they can go out and do that. Luckily, that did not happen to me. But to a degree, I, you know, I probably was during that time drinking, you know, more cocktails and beers in the evening and just kind of like trying to kind of get through another day. And it became a job. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Now, I guess at that point, and I no, I shouldn't guess. I'm not going to presume anything. Yeah. Do you start looking for the next striking of the match, or are you tethered to what you've created because it's growing and it's growing and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger? So you can't really just say, hey, I want to step outside, look sure. for another side hustle. Yeah, I know. I think it's it's not just because of the scale of it, because there's a lot of entrepreneurs that build something and just sell it and then move on to the next thing. It was, could, it was couldn't do that. Yeah, it's because of the purpose of it. You know, I knew that even if it wasn't as fun for me or I wasn't maybe as stimulated as I once was, that I still represented the soul of what Tom's was. And it was still, we were still doing amazing work. We were giving six, seven million children a pair of shoes a year. So, um, but was it just like the numbers were going up and you weren't able to tap into the feeling? Yeah, it, it just maybe the scale of it, I had lost a little of my excitement. And I think at some level, that's even been a challenge for even our customers over the last few years is that they've kind of all feel like they've helped kids get shoes and the numbers have gotten big and maybe they don't feel as connected when they buy a pair of Toms to the giving as they once did. Um, and so I think I was having that same experience. You know, I was kind of like trying to, you know, do the right things for the business, but just didn't have that passion. Um, it just didn't have the it didn't seem like there was as much of a of a, a dragon to slay or a battle to fight, you know, or like we started this conversation with how and do you that's start a where business? I'm at, yeah. yeah, you started the conversation with like how like it's it's actually I, I saw an injustice in two thousand six that kids didn't have shoes and I was it was something worth committing my life to as an entrepreneur or my skills as an entrepreneur. And then now that we're giving eight or ten million 
children's shoes every year, it's still something I'm proud of, but it's not it's not the same thing. It doesn't have that that electric feeling that it did in the beginning. And and that's what a lot of entrepreneurs feel like. But some of the entrepreneurs, when they feel that way, they sell and they exit stage left. I knew that was not a possibility because, you know, even though my name's not Tom, my name's on the door and and my identity and my connection to our program is is part of the reason people come here to work and part of the reason why our partners and our customers continue to support us. So so I was kind of a little bit in like entrepreneur purgatory. <laughs> oh man. And can people know this or is this something that you're just holding inside? I think people see it and then you start what you start doing is you start hiring, you know, people to kind of do what you do and you start spending more time. And look, I'm glad I you know, I And your family yeah, is getting I, Yeah, I start I met my wife, she worked at Tom's, we got married, we moved to Texas, you know, like I kind of distanced myself a little bit for the business, you know, then eventually we, you know, had a, a child and then we have two childs. So like, I mean, so it's, you know, there's I think everything happens for a reason. And I feel like, you know, part of not as in my, my, my period of not being as involved, but still, you know, being the chairman of the board and still being, you know, very integral to the business has been like maybe a, a period that I need to go through to kind of recharge so that when the next big striking of the match was going to happen, I would actually have the energy and the enthusiasm to kind of do it all over again. And that's, you know, kind of what happened three weeks ago. That this is, <laughs> this is now I'm understanding why it happened. Yeah. I mean, I actually... Because it didn't, like, when you think of it, so many of these shootings are happening. Yeah. And all of a sudden, in the space of a few days, these two shootings happen, and now you are willing to throw your entire life and business (laughs) into this. Yeah. And, And I don't think it's kind of a little bit like... What's happened over the past couple of weeks is a little bit like back in Argentina. Like... I was, I had a different feeling of like, you know what, we have to do something. I said, if, you know, if not us, who, and if not now, when? And, and it was this idea that like, we have this huge community, you know, eight or 10 million people that have bought Toms that are, get our catalogs and our emails and are on social media. And I knew that I could tap into this community of people who I believe they buy Toms because they care about making the world a better place because that's what our brand is about. And I knew that we had resources because we've grown into a big business that we could put towards really making a tangible difference in an immediate way and hopefully provide leadership to other companies to join as well. And so I, I, I knew it was a major, major bet but everything in my gut was excited again. Like I woke up at 5 a.m., jumping out of bed, running to the office, like ready to get after this. And that's how we went from idea to being on Jimmy Fallon in seven days. I mean, it's crazy if you think about it. I mean, literally turned the entire company upside down in seven days. And I convinced the leadership team and our CEO and our board and everyone to do this because, and, and part of it was, I, I think I made some very good logical arguments about there's a lot of Americans feeling this way. And, and if we show a little bit of leadership, they will be with us and they will, we won't be on our own out there. Um, but you, made, the, you made an interesting choice because you're basically saying, hey, this is about background checks. Yes, exactly. You're, you're not saying we're taking your guns away. Absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. I mean, we're very pro-gun, pro-hunting, pro-Second Amendment. Like, we believe in responsible gun ownership. But what, what I recognized immediately when I started getting some education very quickly on this space is that that so many of the, of the gun violence victims would not have the faith they had had we had a better process for people to have background checks before they buy guns. I mean, the amount of guns that are bought online with no background check, you have, those people have no idea who they're selling guns to. I mean, you could be on the terrorist watch list and be buying AK-47s. I mean, no one wants that to happen. So when I, after kind of having this like emotional connection to, damn it, Tom's has to do something, to what can we do very quickly learning and understanding about background checks and how effective it can be if we can pass it at a federal level, that gave me more confidence and that ultimately is what gave the company confidence that we could take a very specific thing that would that would be very sensible and not seen as political because 90% of Americans are in favor of background checks. So that's what took it from an emotional like, damn it, we have to do something to here's a sensible way we can approach this that I think will bring people together. Yeah, because who's going to argue with you? Well, there's 10% of people, and they're very loud on social media. <laughs> 10% are saying bu- bullshit. Yeah, 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 because the argument that or, you know, there, there is, is that if we allow background checks today, then— um, t- Tomorrow, yeah, we're going to need a, dry, a, yeah. a license, like a driver's yeah, license, and then, and then after that, everyone's going to know where— we live and the guns are and okay. So it's it's kind of a domino theory. But if you took that approach to any change in any laws, then we would have no progress in our country. So it's a very small minority, but it's a loud minority. And, and, and we've look, we've lost some customers. I mean, we've had, when we measured um, the sentiment online and social media and stuff, about 75% of all the comments and posts have been very positive. Uh, about 15% have been incredibly negative. So we know those customers are gone. And then about 10% has been kind of apathetic. Why would that 15%, I'm just thinking of a Tom's customer. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Maybe they might not be customers. I mean, in all fairness, oh, they okay. might so just these, be. These could, yeah. these, they could, these be, could be the felons. They could be the felons. Yeah. They could be people. These could on, be the yeah. terrorists. Yes, yeah, exactly. It could be. Yeah. But it's, but there are 15%. I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing when you look at, you know, the, the social media comments and all the, all the stuff um, that, yeah, there's 15% are, are pretty, pretty not so happy with us. Okay. So was it, the shootings, or was it your wife's response to the shooting that struck the match for you? Definitely my wife's response. The fact that she was scared to take our son to school and that she said that she just didn't even know if she wanted to take him to school anymore. Like it was it was this idea of potentially living in fear that I think affected me the most because I don't think any of us want to live in fear or have our loved ones live in fear. Like, that's just a shitty way to live. And it was something that was like, that just didn't feel right. Going back to that, like, what strikes a match entrepreneurially, it was like, that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right that my wife now is making a major decision about our child's education because of a shooting that happened 15 minutes from our house and because there was a shooting two weeks before that at a synagogue and because a shooting a month before that at a high school, like, like, like this just is going in a bad place for not only us personally, but our country. Oh, everybody. Yeah. And so it became very personal. And, you know, it's, it's, I've thought a lot about it. Like it's, 
And I've thought a lot about like how we create, you know, sensible policy change. And unfortunately, it, it sometimes has to be personal for for people to, you know, so not not be apathetic. In a way, not much different from the laundry when you got injured in college. Yeah. No, there's a you lot know, of yeah. Yeah, it, it. I got a problem. Yeah, got a problem. And certainly not much different from seeing kids without shoes in Argentina. Yeah. And then certainly not different from being told, hey, are you really, is is your idea for them or to make you feel good? Yeah, exactly. And pushing you along in the direction that you want to go. It, 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 it really does sound like being an entrepreneur is being so attached to the things that are happening around you. Yes. Because I, I kept wondering about this. Is this like a DNA that people are wired? But you, you are wired, but you need the outside striking of the match or else you're really, you don't have anything to go with. No, because I feel like that the only way that you can galvanize the type of support. I mean, 700,000 Americans in three weeks have gone to toms.com and sent postcards to their representatives. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, we've had something like 6 billion media impressions. Like people literally, like we struck a match, but it became a fire really fast because there are a lot of kindlings all around. And that only happens when you are, as an entrepreneur, as a person, are open to kind of being like aware of what's going on around you. And I think, I think on a subconscious level, you know, ever since, you know, Parkland and me signing up for the Everytown, you know, email distribution and the text messages, like, it's interesting. I actually looked at my Instagram feed. I was actually looking for a picture of our, of our daughter, who's now one. And I was flipping through it just two days ago. And I found a post in February of last year. So nine, 10 months ago, after what happened in Parkland. And it was specifically a post about, you know, ending gun violence that I reposted. And so like that trigger, that I seed. I think it's there. It, it was the, there. The seed is there. It was I, not, wasn't conscious. Got it. You know, but I mean, literally on February something here on my Instagram, I found that post and I was like, oh, I don't even remember posting. Here it is. So I reposted this. This is from Good Magazine and it has thoughts and prayers crossed out and it says policy and change. And I reposted that. And and I didn't remember, I didn't even remember doing this, but it obviously it there. planted it's a seed. There. Yeah. So but it took something like making it super personal. That was a that was a, a you know, a, a statement of I believe what you believe. Um, but but it became personal that it took such a, you know, have me make such a dramatic decision. So what does it take? You've already talked about what it took to get the whole shoe process going. What does it take to turn this company? That's kind of, I don't want to say it's <laughs> like harder. A, it's not like an ocean liner because, like, even you know, I'm looking yeah. at your office and there's you've got some beautiful signed guitars. It's like very personal. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's, but it's still 400 people and offices around the world. And you got and, a sliding pond. <laughs> yeah, we we have some fun stuff here, but it's you know, it, but make no. I mean, there's not too many offices you see with sliding ponds. Yes, in, that's in true. In the lobbies, that's so, true. Okay. There is. It is. It is a. 
it is a unique place, but yet it still is a big, it's a big ship. It might not be a cruise ship, but it is a big ship that you don't, it is not used to turning and especially not the speed that we did it. So what happened when all of a sudden, like the captain just said? So, so what happened really was, is a lot of the people who are here are here because they believe that business can make the world a better place. And there are maybe experiencing a little of what I experienced for a few years. And that is, I, I like what we do. I respect what we do, but I'm not, I'm not maybe as electrified, energetic, you know, I'm not activated. And the minute I said, we're going to take a stance on, I think, one of the most important issues of our time, and we're going to give $5 million, which would be the largest gift in the history of the United States to this, people are like, oh, shit, I'm in. You know, like, I mean, it, the same thing we've seen the American public respond to happened in a microcosm here internally where I went, people went from, what do I need to do? Not like, oh, I got this priority or I got to do this or, gotta, I mean, it was just like, stop, drop, and let's do this. I mean, kids, people were coming to work on Saturdays, bringing their kids because they didn't have, you know, childcare. I mean, it became like just the match. And, and that's also, I guess, what ultimately got it kind of, over the hump with the leadership team and our CEO and our board is like, they just saw like, like internally, like people, this was just like, I mean, it was moss to a flame. And so people were like, we are in. And so whenever you see that visceral of a response internally, you know, it's kind of like, we can't really turn back. <laughs> Ship is turning. <laughs> Ship is turning. And everyone kind of got to, got to get on. And so look, and look, I think as a founder, and my CEO and I have an amazing relationship. I mean, truly is kind of like my soulmate in business. Um, in four years that we worked together, I've never pulled a stunt like this, you know? <laughs> right? So I earned a lot of credibility. I mean, right. for four years, I've been a, I've been a, a supportive founder. I've, I've, I've really helped, you know, however I can, him grow the business, run the business. I've never come in and said, I'm the founder. This is what we're doing, ever. And so that when I did One it. One day you show up. So I kind of earned a lot of credibility and a lot of relationship capital there. So when I said, like, you have to trust me on this one, like, this is not only the right thing to do, but this this will not sink our business because other people feel this way. Um, now, we'll lose some customers, but we'll gain some customers. Like, um, you know, ultimately, um, I think four years of relationship building and being a good founder gave me the opportunity to kind of take that shot. Did it take a little convincing? Or, <laughs> yeah. Because he's he's got to be thinking, hey, this is on me. Well, you know, he's he, he personally immediately is like, this is amazing. Like, maybe this is something that you and Heather do personally. You know, I don't know if we have the credibility or we have the, you know, positioning to go from giving shoes to now taking on ending gun violence. And this is this could be seen as highly political. And a lot of our customers are on the right. A lot of our customers are on the left. Like, how is this going to... I mean, there's just so many unknowns. I mean, the truth of the matter is, from our CEO to our board to our leadership team, I think when they first heard the idea, everyone was doing head nodding of like, wow, like that's a really powerful thing. Let's spend six months doing research to see if we can do it. <laughs> six yeah. months? Yeah. No, six hours. Yeah. And, and, and my response was, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, in, in hindsight, it was, I mean, I'm glad it was this way because I was so emotionally charged. It was like, no, like, I'm not going to wait for another shooting to tell me this is the right thing to do. Wow. And if we wait six months and create a whole marketing plan, it'll people will see it as bullshit. You know, like if we respond right away, 
in a, in a very raw and visceral way, people will join us because they are also enraged by this. But if we spend six months creating a whole marketing plan and research that shows that we are only going to lose, yeah, this isn't yeah. this, this isn't going to work if it's polished. Yeah, exactly. And and look, that's that's you know that's what made you know, it. Hard. It comes back to oddly selling a story. Yeah. If 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 your story is authentic, authentic then people will join you. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's compelling. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. If it's manufactured or polished yeah. or whatever, people can can sniff that out. Yeah. Okay, so where does this go? What like, do you could you couldn't see where Tom's was going when you started? Yeah. Can you see where this is going now I, that I, you've started? I think a little bit. So um, two things. One, you know, we have the next three months are critical. So you know, we're at almost you know, 700,000 people sent postcards. Our goal is to get a million people before January 4th when Congress is back in session. At that point, then they're going to be inundated with postcards and their offices are going to be totally in disarray because they're going to get more postcards showing more people care about this than ever before. And we believe that in late January, um, this will go, uh, this legislation, a bipartisan bill will be put on the House floor, um, and we believe that we'll be victorious in the vote. I mean, we really think that this is something that we can get passed through the House. Then the really hard work of getting it through the Senate will be the next step. Um, and we have lots of ideas and other stunts planned for that, um, and we're working on that. So now we have a little time to plan so we can execute even better. Um and, 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 and now, if it goes through the Senate, yeah, is everything over or did, did, well, uh, there's still a possibility, you know, uh, if the president wanted to veto it, he could. I don't think that would happen, especially going into a new election cycle. And if 90% of Americans want something and it really gets passed bipartisan, I think it then can become a law. And then, you know, and then we get to celebrate with everyone who participate. Like how often in life do you actually get to send a postcard or make a phone call or take a step of activism and actually see a benefit? You know, so much of that stuff, you feel like you do something and nothing ever happens. So my hope is, is you have a million people that have sent postcards and activate on this. It gets passed, it becomes a law. And now we have a million people that are ready for the next thing we want to go after. Like, what is the next issue of our time? <laughs> right? I'm looking at your eyes yeah. right now. Yeah. And, and, and this is what I came in to see. Yeah. Like, you're, whatever that is inside of you. Yeah. Is waiting for the next. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm, in, I'm activated. Like, it's like the match, the fire is lit. And, it's, and I see the bigger picture now because I can see, because I've seen this movie before with the early days of Tom's, I can see, like, we help a million people feel the joy and satisfaction of making a change and being part of American history. Those people will go anywhere with us now. And so now... What is the next issue of our time that maybe has become politicized that really shouldn't be, that we can bring people together on? I mean, I have no idea what it is, but I know that that match will happen again. Well, <laughs> I look forward to coming back and talking <laughs> to you when it does, brother. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great for me to understand how an entrepreneur functions. Mm. And... I know where it's taking me. It's taking me to fill out a postcard. That's <laughs> where it's taking me for now. But we'll see where we go on this journey. Great. All right. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Thank you.
That was really fun. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss, as always, for putting me in all these new places when he nudged me to start this podcast. And my man, Jake Strom, for helping to set this conversation up. Hoping you'll go to toms.com and send a postcard to your representative. This is the only solution in the gun debate that nearly everybody agrees upon. I want to thank Blake Mykoski for going on this mission. And you know what? My friends at Sportique are going to send him a hoodie and sweats because they want him to feel comfortable as he goes out on his mission. Check out Sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. And you'll see why I'm so happy to have them sponsor Big Questions. And thanks for sending photos of where you listen to Big Questions. Got some from Anna Yellen in Lapland, Sweden. It was negative 31 degrees outside. And Anna and her husband Samuel had icicles dripping from their eyelids. They said it was a lovely day. Well, Lapland was lovely for me when I was there 30 years ago, but I went in the summer. One of these days, Anna, I will clink glasses with you and Samuel in the winter. I hope to clink glasses with everyone listening to this podcast at some point. So please keep those photos coming. See you next week. Cheers. 